for October 8th, 2012. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 223. Taking, taking to the next level. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for high production values, I can tell you I don't have any budget. (laughs) But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills acquired over a very long career as a podcaster. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you, our audience. (laughs) (laughs) If you download our show from five different IP addresses, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will subject you to a level of scrutiny. <laughs> not yet, not yet. <laughs> no, I, hey, I, welcome to the Overthinking Podcast. What a strange intro. I'm your host, Matt Rather. Uh, we are here to overthink Taken 2, to overthink Revolution, and to overthink uh, politics. The, that's the third rail of our podcast. No, we're not going to overthink podcast politics, except for a little bit. Uh, but uh, yes, that, that a, a bastardized and uh, travestied version of Liam Neeson's speech from the original Taken. Uh, we'll have more on Taken 2 in a little bit. Uh, fortunately, um, 66% of the podcast has not seen Taken 2, so you know it's going to be a good show. All right, so panel... Your question tonight, in honor of the presidential debates, the year is 2013. It's January 20th, 2013. You've just been sworn in as the next president of the United States. Your job is to balance the budget. Never mind that balanced budgets are, are kind of a false god in, in a nation such as ours of you know, our size and economic power. But never mind. You're going to balance the budget, and you are going to do it by eliminating one beloved icon of popular media, of, of public media, I should say, like Big Bird. But Mitt Romney already took Big Bird, so you can't have that one. <laughs> he, he's on the panel tonight? Whoa. <laughs> Governor Romney. You, no. Um, can't take out Big Bird, but you are going to take someone out. Who are you going to fire from PBS, NPR, or some other? Are the, is there any other public media? The the emergency broadcasting system. <laughs> <laughs> You're taking all the good answers. <laughs> Beep! Hit the bricks, pal. Hit the bricks. <laughs> Who are you going to fire and why? Uh, drink, because Ben Adams is not on the podcast. It's Peter Fenzel. <laughs> Look, uh, I just want to say that uh, we really need to start taking some more personal responsibility uh, for, for, for our problems in our country. And I think we can really heal this budgetary divide by, by really, really, really rounding out, really answering our own question and give it, giving a... Uh, a sound declaration that that only you can find new part-time employment, perhaps selling stuff on the side of the highway. Only you can uh, move in with your parents for a little while. Only you can fire Smokey the Bear, mascot of the United States Forest Service, who, let's, be, let's face it, has not been pulling his weight, which is like 700 pounds. Uh, at least he's a giant bipedal bear. No, I mean, <laughs> look, Smokey needs to get with the times and adapt. He needs to get hip. He needs to get fresh. He needs to date a lesser Kardashian. He needs to do something to really make himself current. I actually saw Smokey the Bear on an internet banner ad recently, and it both it made me laugh both because like me on the internet at that time seemed like in the least possible scenario for creating a forest fire that was like feasible or possible, and also because it's like, well, if this was a good idea, why didn't they do it ten or fifteen years ago? You know, like why has they only decided to put Smokey the Bear on the internet now? Uh, or have I been missing him? But yeah, it's unfortunate that we could that we are having this conversation now because Smokey has already been given his papers and is going to be. Um, he actually enrolled in a correspondence course in radio repair, so I'm sure he's going to be fine. Uh, can I, I, I want to share with you guys a conspiracy theory that I heard as a child, that, so it must be true, because everything you okay. hear as a child has like a very special kind of authority, right? Because you're, mm-hmm. you're 
extremely uh, credulous. Anyway, um, we uh, were big fans of going camping in California's great national parks in, you know, Sequoia National Park, Kings Canyon National Park, Yosemite. Those were the main ones that, that uh, we went to. And we would drive up in the station wagon, my mother, my brother, and me, and we would, uh, you know, uh, pitch the tents in the campsite and we would hike during the day and around the campfire we would, you know, I don't know, roast marshmallows and whatnot at night. It was a great sort of outdoor... Uh, a sort of education and a great way to get out of the get out of the city, Los Angeles, the bleeding edge of America. Um, but um, the National Park Service uh, has and and it's you know it's hardworking rangers in their uh, uncomfortably Teutonic looking uniforms, <laughs> right? Uh, and but Our with are awesome, right? with awesome hats, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Who are who are um, I, they all seemed like, you know, when you're a child, every grown-up seems like they're the same age. They just belong to the category of grown-up, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But now now I realize that there are people who are our age or, or younger even who were, you know, I don't know, working out their um, – uh, I don't know, working out their issues post-college or whatnot. Uh, anyway, so the, uh, the, the park rangers, I guess, have a kind of rivalry – or a, a kind of mutual disdain, perhaps, between the National Park Service and the National Forest Service, mm. right? Which are two separate bureaucracies within the federal government. And the National Park Service, uh, organized, if I'm not mistaken, under the, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, under the Department of the Interior, exists to sort of conserve the landscape and kind of uh, allow nature to take its course. Um, National Forest Service, organized under the Department of Agriculture, right, treats um, the land as, uh, what, as agricultural, right? That is to say, as a resource to be used, you know, for the, the, the economic, uh, you know, betterment of the country. So Smokey the Bear, they had um, some unkind words the National Park Service park rangers had for Smokey the Bear. That is to say, only you can prevent forest fires so that instead the logging concerns can take our trees because, you know, you can't cut them down if they're burned to the ground. Whereas the National Park Service would do things like intentionally set controlled fires in certain places in national parks uh, because firefighting is actually not part of the sort of natural cycle of things. So they would do controlled burns and uh, forest fires actually, you know, I don't know, are part of the life cycle of a forest and allow uh, ground to be cleared so that new trees can take root and, you know, all that ash is like occasionally good for the soil and and things like this. So Smokey the Bear is, is a tool of the logging industry. <laughs> right, and I learned wow. this. As, I learned this as a child, and I, I, I'm not <laughs> sure it was necessarily worth the rabbit hole I've just taken us down. But what do you what do you think of that, Pete? You know, your 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 hero has feet of clay. So, well, I was looking up his history, and he has a really complicated legal history. Uh, he was he's he's created and protected by the U.S. federal law, uh, 16 U.S. Code 580P2, uh, the Smokey the Bear Act of 1952, which ministers him under the U.S. Forest Service, the National Association of State Foresters, and the Ad Council. The Ad Council, of course, being the the wartime propaganda institution, right? That's since become this this uh, this big factor in American media. So he's definitely like really entrenched bureaucratically in the military industrial complex and across the various political land. I, you know what? I believe it. I, I believe that Smokey the Bear is like uh, is I, you know a what? I think that when they make stooge, Pete, he is a <laughs> corporate stooge. Da Vinci Code Four. You heard it here first. You know, only you can. Do, on. Only you can uh, wait, wait, stop. Wait, wait. Based on what I've heard, uh, it's a bad idea to. To cut Smokey Bear from the budget because if he's helping the logging industry, the logging industry creates jobs. That's, that's broadening the base right there, man. That's going to help balance the budget. And and thus we see, yeah, now we see the problem. But we, we're not here to talk about that. We're, we don't want to be too alienating, you know, and whatnot. He can't, so. he, uh, Smokey the Bear can't vote, though. You know why? No ID. I came. <laughs> I came here to bury Smokey the Bear, not to praise him. All right, uh, Mark Lee. Who are you going to do away with? The obvious answer is Jim Lair, the poor moderator of uh, 
the presidential paper from last week, but the, the rest of the media has already claimed that. No, they're not on the panel tonight either. Um, so I'm going to go with them. It's okay. It's a very inside New York City reference. This is WNYC, our local public radio station, a personality by the name of Jonathan Schwartz. So if you live oh, in New Broadway York, Broadway guy, he's terrible. Okay, <laughs> just bear with. All right, I don't care if he's the Broadway guy or the whatever guy. Okay, um, he, he comes on on on, uh, on public radio, and he used to be on on prime time on Saturday afternoons when you're kind of lounging around and you want to hear things that are actually interesting and not some old guy who talks at about this pace and leaves a lot of. Dead air that public radio is so disdain for. <laughs> that's that is about the pace of what Jonathan Schwartz talks at. Okay, and so in this new bold new world of um, of Romneynomics and uh, and you know uh, administration of government like uh, like a like a private equity fund, um, we're there's going to be strict quantitative performance measures for all sorts of different media. Um, and we're, we're, okay, so Mitt Romney put out and said that his uh, his threshold test is whether it's worth paying uh, you know borrowing money from China to pay for it. Okay, sure, that can be one test. But the other thing is you have to measure things by uh, you know quantitative output. And uh, in public media, there needs to be a a strict sort of like output word output per minute rate that everybody is measured at. And Jonathan Schwartz is going to tumble way to the bottom of those ratings. So he is going to be out of there along with Big Bird because he's financed by the Chinese. This this whole borrowing (laughs) money from China thing is uh, there's a secondary. Never mind. I'm really looking forward to a public radio that's dominated by uh, the great John Machida Jr. and Buster Rhymes, like working together. Uh, Also known as the Micro Machines guy is John Machida Jr., (laughs) uh, who has been clocked at 586 words per minute as the world's fastest talker in the Guinness Book of World Records. So there you but go. Can we double back for a moment? Are, are you guys with me with this whole thing about like the very deliberate, slow delivery that uh, that NPR is disdained for? Is, is this a thing for you guys, or am I just making this stuff? I don't because know. Because of my like rational you're... hatred for Jonathan Schwartz. I, I don't like know, you... <laughs> Mark. It's complicated. <laughs> I feel like you get you get three sentences of it, and then you have to play Richard Marks or Carly Simon, right? Like That's what you do on the radio. If you're talking like this... Then you have to put on something for the lonely hearts. You know, like it's uh, <laughs> you got to break it up. It's not so much the slowness of the talking as the length of time that they spend doing it. And that, I think that's if from a, just a show composition standpoint. It's like you need to modulate the tempo more. I mean, I I'm off to the races all the time, but I'm sure that if I modulated my tempo more, I'd be a more skilled and able uh, podcaster and and whatnot. Okay, so, I need to add to my Excel budget performance module there. So um. Uh, while I do that, you guys keep on going. With the show. I, I actually I listened to last week's show uh, before recording this week's show um, because for some reason my girlfriend was playing it in the house today uh, and and playing it while she was walking around doing, you know, household chores and things like this, like uh, on her iPhone, keeping her company. And it was very it was um, it was quite weird because I think I did a funny voice in the last episode. And it was so it was sort of me, but not me. It was it was strange. Anyway, so we get going, we get talking at a pretty good clip, you know? Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And and I think that might lead to some extra stumbling over words, some extra kind of um, 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 uh, 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 not just the excitement to get things out, not just the, you know, need to talk over five or six other panelists last week, right? That wasn't a big show last week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, not just that. I, th- I think that maybe if we just slowed down and talked at a slightly more deliberate pace, no one would notice. They're all listening to it on their podcatchers at two times speed anyway, right? Like, so uh, we could really talk as slow as you yeah. please, and it would be normal once they, uh, once they get around to listening to it, the audience. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have any money. What I do have are a very particular set of skills (laughs) developed over a long career. And this is James Taylor with Fire and Rain. (laughs) And I'll find you and I'll kill you. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) 
never thought I'd be taken again. Can we take that the other direction? Imagine Liam Neeson as a public radio personality. Oh, NYC. This is Liam Neeson. I don't even stop headlines. Have you seen the? Have you seen the? His bit on extras. I think it was the first episode. Not extras. What's the? Uh, what's the one with Warwick Davis? Uh, uh, life's too short. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's it has Ricky Gervais. That's why I. Oh yeah. Stress. Are you kidding? I, I'm an improv comic. Every improv comic in the country was emailing that to all the other improv comics for like six months. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's a. I and I feel like that like that level of seriousness, or not not necessarily seriousness. That level of kind of um, that delivery is Liam Neeson as a public radio uh, as a public yeah. radio personality. We'll link it up in the show notes if you. Uh, yeah, uh, don't know what I'm talking about, but but you know, Pete, you know what you just reminded me when when you were doing uh, the taken speeches as a uh, public radio announcer. You know who we haven't heard from in a while? Who? If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have any money. <laughs> but what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. The fan service came in the first half of the podcast <laughs> this week. Wow, we were, we were way ahead of pace here. So I was going to fire um, uh, Huel Hauser, who is a – I don't know if he's syndicated nationally or if he's just a local California uh, PBS affiliate uh, guy. I don't know if his shows actually make it, you know, um, what – make it east of Reno. But the uh, – I'm not going to do that because he's not well known enough. You you may know that recently America suffered a financial crisis. Um, what? <laughs> really? <laughs> you know, and Sorry. and the blame has been placed. Uh, he said, employing passive construction to mimic uh, politicians. The blame has been placed in in. Uh, you know, at several doorsteps, the, our politicians, our insufficient regulatory uh, apparatus, our creating uh, credit ratings agencies who were out to lunch or asleep at the wheel or whatever. The or, Chinese. <laughs> right. Uh, banking with a capital B, which, you know, is not like, uh, you know, I don't know, mom and pop, which is not like small business loans and like mom and pop socking away their life savings anymore, but is this sort of global, unregulated, uh, you know, gray market uh, mm-hmm. sort of endeavor now. But no, I place the blame at the feet of one Kai Rizdal, host of American Aww. Public Media's Marketplace. Kai, I am calling you out. It is your journalism that got us into this mess. And so, uh, sir, I'm sorry to hand you this pink slip. You have 90 days, uh, and we have some job placement services for you. Please clear out your desk. I, I, I recommend people go back and read my Shredder Krang bailout <laughs> articles from the financial crisis, which I really personally feel are a very accurate <laughs> portrayal of what happened when the Ninja Turtles introduced systemic risk into the, into the Foot Clan's business operations. <laughs> Look, these are perfectly fine ninjas. They're going to go up in value as soon as this crisis passes, okay, people? Come on. We have literally thousands of ninjas. There's no way that they could just be completely worthless against just four ninja turtles uh boy i should i, like uh, I should apologize to kai Rizal. i just uh, i just thought of him you know um maybe i should hire uh maybe i should fire huel hauser after all you guys are actually firing real people i'm just firing a bear <laughs> I'm bears firing... aren't even supposed to have jobs bears don't, bears just eat honey and like go in, in in rivers looking for salmon and stuff so i mean he'd be returning to his natural habitat of generally being a bum Bears riding on the bottom of boxcars, right? Like I mean, well, you have your direct labor costs with the honey and the salmon, but the fringe benefits and the pension costs of the bears just <laughs> through the roof. Don't get right. me started. The hibernation is the money trying to pay for. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Is it worth chi- asking China to pay for this picnic basket? <laughs> 
different bear. Um, so, uh, yes, I'm, th- I'm sorry, Mr. Rizal. I didn't mean to si- single you out like that. It, it was for a joke, though, so all is forgiven. I I'm single. I'm going to still single out Jonathan Schwartz. I'm not really joking about wanting to fire him. Oh, but just to complete a thought that I started earlier and didn't finish. So they put him, they, they basically booted him from his Saturday slot and sh- shunted him off into Sundays. Um, because nobody likes to listen to him. Yeah, but his show—he also has a show on SiriusXM, right? So it's—he's not just on public media; he's on for-profit private media. Even also. better, right? So he's already got a private sector job where he's not leeching from the taxpayers and the Chinese. It does—it does seem to make sense, I think, right? Um, that is to say, it's such a niche thing, like wanting to listen to a guy drone on about Broadway music, that it makes—it makes more sense as a. I don't know, a podcast or a satellite radio thing where you can have a zillion, a zillion channels on the FM spectrum where you can only have, um, I don't know, however many dozens of, of stations, maybe you should do something that's more, I don't know, that, that has a, a slightly more Catholic appeal. Um, though, you know, I don't that's know. Catholic. Little C, not a yeah, big C. Catholic, Catholic with a little C, not not Catholic appeal as in Pia Jesu Domine. No, not not that kind of Catholic. Though here in Los Angeles, you can't spin the dial without hitting uh, some ranchero music or something like that. Anyway, uh, God, 20 minutes ago, we started this podcast. This is what happens when we talk slow, is it goes really slow. <laughs> We don't get to talk this much. No, I know we get, it's quality over quantity. Pete, you've seen uh, you've seen Taken two. Um, yes, I mean, is it just Taken one all over again? Can can you do uh, when I was a uh, when I was a you know college literature and composition teacher? I uh, and we introduced a new genre of work. I would ask my students to compare and contrast just formally, like how is this different? Well, it's not written in iambic pentameter, but is instead written in paragraphs of prose because it's a novel right like and i think that doing that ringing the changes in a very basic way on on a thing can actually uh and just getting those obvious things onto the table can actually help a lot uh in a discussion such as this so like is taken to can you compare and contrast taken uh, which i will henceforth refer to as taken one for clarity uh <laughs> taken one and taken two should we just call them t1 and t2 just to irritate mark <laughs> um, so I've not, I've not seen. I have to confess, I saw Taken Two just as a standalone. I, I've not really seen Taken One, and it, it holds up. It's great. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I was really shocked to see that it had such low rankings in Rotten Tomatoes and whatnot. Roger Ebert gave it three stars. I thought it was great. You know, you know, written, co-written by Luc Besson, writer of you know Fifth Element and Transport and whatnot. So, but I would characterize if my understanding of what happens in Taken One is roughly accurate, which is that his daughter is kidnapped and he has to go get her back right she's kidnapped in paris and he has to like implement his former cia skills or whatever to go get her back then this is um this is i got my i got my kidnappers in paris exactly they they go in gorillas yeah so if taken is that's the function of taken then taken two is f prime of taken which is that it's like it's like taken it's like the like if it's velocity, then it's acceleration, right? It's like the rate of taking of taken, where like you t- you take taking to the next level, and, <laughs> and I'll explain this uh, in two ways because there's two different. Uh, so so taken two takes place in Istanbul, right? And this is very important to taken two, and it is described in a rather telling scene by Liam Neeson as the place where uh, when East moves west or west moves east, they always cross the water at Istanbul, right? They always go across the, the, the Dardanelles, or the Bosporus, rather. Um, and so it's meant as this sort of point where these sort of historical dialectics are playing back and forth. And there are two different kind of futures that are both built off of the consequences of Taken 1 that are vying for supremacy in Taken 2. Uh, one of them, which is really interesting and I really like, is that uh, it turns out that all of the henchmen who are killed in Taken 1, uh, all their families are very upset and very sad. And uh, the father of the main villain in Taken 1 is like out for revenge against Liam Neeson for taking his son away, right? For killing his son. Uh, and it's sort of like you kill... It's, the henchman part is the more interesting one where it's like he shows him all the pictures of all the henchmen. He's like, do you remember this guy? He's like, nope. Do you remember this guy? Nope. Do you remember this guy? Nope. And it like flashes back to the like, shoots this guy in the face and like, you know, knocks this guy in the back of the head and he kn- knocks him out. Uh, all of the various people who were in Taken 1 who died uh, 
it's about the pain that the sort of paterfamilias of this Albanian crime family feels as he tries to get revenge against Liam Neeson, right? So that's the sort of way in which that's who's taking the takers, right? Like, how, how does the cycle continue? Uh, and then the other side of it is that Liam Neeson is kidnapped, and he has to uh, get his daughter to help rescue him. Uh, so it's, it's flipped, right? Like, he and Famke Jansen, his sort of estranged sort of wife, not really, right? They're like, they have kind of a fling. They had a bad relationship in the past. She married somebody else and whatnot. Um, so he has to sort of guide his daughter in like an effort to save him from from the kidnappers. How do they, uh, but, when I saw the, the trailer, the thing I was wondering was, how do they communicate? Does, does, he hides it, he... Yeah, he hides his cell phone in his foot. Oh, he, has, uh, he has like a CIA spy cell phone. I mean, the movie is very brisk. The movie is only ninety minutes long. Um, by the time he is taken, you are well into the movie. Um, there's a fair amount of buildup. Um, I mean, but it moves along at, at a at a quick pace. So the so the and then there's a long stretch of the movie that's just like a really extraordinary series of chase scenes. I'm not extraordinary, but cinema quality, right? And, and Mercedes is everywhere. Mercedes has bought. I mean, this is like if if. Chevrolet is to Transformers as Mercedes is to Taken 2 for some reason. They just have every car in Istanbul is apparently a Mercedes, um, which kind of makes you think about how the sort of German ind- industrial uh, complex presides over the various military conflicts and, and economic conflicts happening in the world. Um, but that's a, whole other, that's a whole other kettle of fish. But yeah, so that's how I would describe it. I would describe it as in Taken 1, Liam Neeson had something taken from him, and he took a bunch of things from other people. And in Taken 2, it's the consequences of both of those actions, the thing that he saved versus the things that he took, right? And then, and then you know, there's a, denou- there's a series of denouements that are pretty, pretty extraordinary, too. So. Um, but I would also say that the movie isn't entirely sympathetic to Liam Neeson a lot of the time, which is kind of probably its most interesting quality, is that every once in a while it's sort of like, you realize he's kind of a bad guy, right? Like, he's kind of obsessive. He's kind of super creepy. There are reasons why his relationships don't work. Uh, the people that he killed were people's brothers and fathers and sons. Uh, he just sort of kills them like they're nothing. He doesn't really care. Uh, it, there's definitely a kind of um, grayness to that, and I think that um, it's brought out in a couple of different places. There's well, that, a, that's oh, but, a, yeah, that's sure, interesting. I, oh, sorry, you, you finish before I jump in. I was just saying we should warn there are Taken spoilers, but I feel like if you haven't seen Taken 2, you know, you're not going to lose too much about the spoilers and whatnot at this point. But I got to warn everybody. So I don't think I've spoiled too much yet, but uh, that happens late in the movie. But we'll talk about it. We might spoil some things later. But anyway, continue. So in, in Taken 1, spoiler alert, one of the plot points is that, like, she's being – she's not just kidnapped. She's kidnapped and, like, human trafficked to be sex-slaved on this yacht, on this yeah. sort of, like, vaguely Middle Eastern, you know, looking guy's yacht, right? Um, yeah. And uh, uh, plump, right? Fat. Like, the boss is always fat, right? Whereas the, the henchmen who get killed and, and whose lives are taken, right, uh, are all, you know, lithe and wiry and, you know, great at, at various forms of martial arts. Um, but so the, these people are, you know, these people are, right, like henchmen in, in, a, uh, in an effort at, like, you know, uh, at at modern day slavery at human trafficking and and like how much really how much do you think as an as a i don't know as a matter of ethics how much do do their families get to complain you know when in in the course of doing their their very very uh high risk job right they they lose their life i don't know well i mean i think that that is the point that a more conventional uh movie of this sort would get hung up on would be are you saying that I'm are you saying that I'm a more conventional movie of this sort? <laughs> no, I'm I'm saying you've seen a lot of movies, so you would expect that that the the movie cares whether or not the reason that these people are being taken back and forth is like a good or a bad thing. And I'm not saying that it's noir, but uh, it's pretty clear that the the father does not care that his son was in human trafficking. And it's not necessarily indicated that the father was involved in the human trafficking. The father is certainly a crime boss of some sort, but he's not portrayed in the movie as doing anything especially heinous in the same way that his son is portrayed as doing really heinous things in Taken 1. Um, and I think that one of the things that appeal is appealing about Taken 
as a franchise is that Liam Neeson's motivations are very, very clear, as well as the degree of sort of of possession they have over him, right? Like, I am saving my daughter from sex slavery and torture and whatnot, and I am, like, saving, you know, and it's it's all very urgent and it's all very personal. Um, and I think that when you change the duty of the hero of a story from a kind of societal duty to a familial duty there are important moral questions that that raises and i think that taken to doesn't let the audience off entirely clean on those moral questions well the, it doesn't necessarily pose them too hard but it doesn't like give them an out right uh and like why do you care about your daughter more than i care about my son how come you get to save your daughter but my son has to die right and the answer is because you are an american cia agent who has access to all this knowledge and resources and i am merely an albanian crime boss wait hold on you know, hold like, on is that that sounds that sounds like a straw man argument on the part of the albanian crime boss to me though right like uh i think that there's there's a different i think that that rescue has different um prerogatives than revenge right yeah but but taken two doesn't dwell too hard on on like taken two sort of um it doesn't necessarily retcon but like it really doesn't frame the from the perspective of the albanian crime boss it certainly is a revenge plot but like they really don't carry into this movie how heinous the kidnapping of the daughter was in taken one in fact they kind of let it slide and i think that they let it slide in order to make this movie more interesting but you're right and that like it's not like you should just write that off they're not the the same it's not but in this movie it's kind of posed as the same because you could also ask the question well when liam neeson i mean liam neeson in this movie the reason he's in istanbul is he's providing private security for some oil sheik who's doing business in istanbul and one might question well what's the relationship between a former cia agent who's now a private security contractor who's working for like a middle eastern oil sheik right who's like in turkey doing business like where's his moral compass what what are the what are the implications of what he's doing right like how, where but of course it's like several degrees removed away from kidnapping people and putting them into sex slavery um and i'm not saying it's just as bad you know i'm not being that iconoclastic or that sort of countercultural about it but i do think that that especially when you're talking about middle eastern politics it all gets very difficult to nail down whose side everybody is on um and and this movie is more involved with that than taken one was uh, i think to an extent at least get based on how you're describing it yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Taken one did not consider the um, uh, did not consider the sort of moral implications. I mean, uh, for example, you know, there were lots of, and they all were, you know, young nubile women, right? Like they, they, yeah. there were lots of young women being sold into to uh, being trafficked into sex slavery, right? Like at the sex slave auction. Like the the kind of uncomfortably fetishized like sex slave auction at the end of Taken One, where uh, Liam Neeson finally catches up with his his daughter and um, you know follows her out to the final boss. Uh, the, um, <laughs> Does he fight Adobo and kick him out of the helicopter? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, a double it, dragon. Right? That's what it. I mean, that's what it is. Taken One had yeah. like a had a video game plot right where where there right, were right. like two or three mini bosses and then and then the final boss. Um, the, and the, you know, the final layer was a yacht, which I guess is cool. Um, yeah. but like there, there were other girls being sex trafficked and, and, uh, Liam Neeson, you know, ha- had spared no thought for them. You know, he, he was not, he was not on a societal mission against human trafficking. He was on a familial mission, you know, a, a, to, to recover his, to recover his daughter, uh, yeah, from, yeah, from yeah. being you know, trafficked for sex. Right. I mean, the the bad guys in this movie, the way that they make them bad is they have them, like, torture people, sort of. Like, cut them with knives and, like, use really sort of scary implements on them. But you, the very first thing you learn in the movie is, like, you start out learning about... You start out at the funerals. Like, they, they load the bodies from Taken One of all the henchmen out of the airplane. And the very first scene of the movie, after a long truck porn shot, like, uh, from, like, Black Dog style, where you follow a truck through the hills of Albania, is, like, the mass grave of the victims of Liam Neeson. Oh, right? Like, 
<laughs> uh, and as you throw the, the throw the dirt on them, right? And everyone's like, you know, praying and mourning their loss. Um, and it's like, we'll bring him here, and we'll put his blood in this ground, and we'll get our revenge, right? It's it's uh, it's very. Uh, they really hit that note really really hard. Now, of course, at some point, they like stab Famke Jansen and hang her upside down with a bunch of chains with a sack over her head, and it's like really brutal and terrible. They're not good people. Um, they're, they're definitely not portrayed as good people, nor are they good people, but there's like a lot of pain all around. There's a lot of pain that's being shared. There's also a very um, interesting scene, at, and one of the final scenes in the movie, uh, where like, and again, spoilers, Liam Neeson like goes up to, and, and one of the cool things about this movie is how haggard Liam Neeson looks through the whole movie. He's like totally exhausted. He looks way too old for this nonsense, but like still dangerous, right? Every once in a while, they pull out and they just sort of show you how big Liam Neeson's physical body is like he'll just be sitting in a chair and you're like geez he's tall you know like and they'll shoot it in a way that makes it look really conspicuous like what a large man he is um and like he gets he gets into the face he finally meets up with the the final boss as it were and he's like it's look like you know you go home uh i'll let you go uh you give me your word and i'll let you go you go enjoy life with your two other sons uh, and he goes like why would you do this like why why would you let me go and he goes like i'm tired of all this oh. <laughs> <You know>, like, <laughs> he's just like i he's just like i'm just tired i'm exhausted like i just i don't want to bother i think he he says the line that they had that they really sell is like um, if I kill you, your sons are going to come after me, right? And he's like, yup. And he's like, well, then I'm going to kill your sons too. So we can end this right here. And then he does the thing where he gives, he like puts his gun down and he walks away. And then the bad guy picks up the gun and shoots it at him. It's the old Hans Gruber trick from Die Hard. And there's no bullets in it, right? And Liam Neeson is like, you're an idiot. I'm going to kill you now. Um, so he does actually kill all of them. Yeah, yeah, basically, he gives the boss an out by saying, you can end the cycle of violence here and now by giving my word, giving your word that this is the final act of violence. I'll walk away. You'll walk away. We'll all go home. It'll be over. And then the, then the, the guy gives his word. Liam Neeson walks away. And like not a second and a half later, the bad guy tries to betray him. And then this cycle of violence starts over. And you can assume that the sons are going to go try to kill Liam Neeson. And Liam Neeson's going to kill them too. And then it really abruptly cuts from there to like his daughter's driving test and them all eating ice cream sundaes. <laughs> it's wow. like, Whoa. yeah, because it's like it shows you really jarringly, like really jarringly what a, what a privileged life. Uh, Liam Neeson and his family live in Los Angeles. Just like like the I, the safety that they have. Like the I, you should see this movie if only to see the ridiculous ice cream sundaes that everybody eats while they're laughing at the end of this movie. Not like ten minutes after Liam Neeson has like personally smashed the head of an elderly like like Albanian Muslim man into the wall of a Turkish bath to murder him. You know, like like it, and they're all they all laugh and the movie just ends and you're just like wow that's dark like that's that's really that, dark. I mean, is it a is it a naked Naked man fight worthy of Eastern promises? <laughs> no, Liam Neeson keeps his clothes on. Uh, you, <laughs> you, you get the sense that if the fight escalated and he had to take his final form, that perhaps he would go naked. But uh, it is similar to the Eastern promises fight. But no, all of the, all of the uh, Liam Neeson is always wearing his clothes, and all of the Albanian men are either wearing sweaters or tracksuits for the <laughs> entire movie. So, hey, yeah, Pete, I, <laughs> what you're describing here, it's helping me understand. Uh, this extremely negative uh, review that I'm seeing here on Rotten Tomatoes. And earlier you said that you like the movie, right? I think and- it's interesting. I mean, it has a lot of problems. Like, they are setting off explosives all over Turkey, and the police never show up. Like, all over Istanbul. Like, they're, like, setting off bombs, like, at the Hagia Sophia, like, within a few blocks from it. And there's no sign of the Turkish police until two hours into the movie. But anyway, yeah, so there are problems with it, but I, I liked it a lot. But, but is it this bad here? Now, I, I understand, I'm starting to understand where this review is coming from, but let me just uh, read this here. This is Andrew O'Hare from Salon.com. <clears throat> a meta-American movie, a Godardian spoof of the whole genre... An attempt to see how stupid and insulting a motion picture can be and still be a big hit. Now, oh, no, that's not true at all. So it's not just, stupid. So, like when I when I when I hear you describe this sort of abrupt cut from the brutal killing of this Albanian uh, uh, bad guy, and then into the you know the the, the LA scene in, in the ice cream shop, it's like I, I can see how someone could walk away from that and feel like the movie is insulting the audience. But it sounds like you don't think 
that's what's happening. It's it's making some sort of commentary that what that uh, Andrew here of Salon.com is is not getting. Is there sort of like a Starship Trooper sort of thing going on here, where like uh, the movie is like is mocking the audience, and the audience is uh, is if they get it, they're going to feel uncomfortable about it, and that's what sort of throws everyone off. I don't think that it's – I mean there are parts of the movie that are funny, and definitely people were laughing and throwing up their hands at these parts of the movie. But I don't think that they're meant parodically. Like, I don't think they're meant as – like, so that when I was leaving, the scene that I most wanted to compare these scenes to is um, in the movie Clear and Present Danger. And I might have mentioned this scene a couple of years ago in a podcast. There's a transition I really love where they transition from like they're in Colombia, right? And they're doing like a raid against these drug lords in Colombia or whatever. It might be a different Latin American country. It's been a long time. And there's like, you know, there's Chavez and he's in the helicopter, right? And they're like sneaking around in Colombia. And then all of a sudden you cut to the president of the United States who's going like hunting with his dog in the forests of northern Virginia, mm-hmm. right? And there's this like very kind of stark and, and kind of stirring difference in the feel of like the jungles of South America and the forests of North America, but they're presented in a tone that kind of sets them in opposition to each other in a way that kind of makes the conflict make, conflict make sense. You know what I mean? Like it's like, oh, I kind of get why the president of the United States is so hostile to these drug lords because they're kind of both on opposite sides of this divide. There's like a big social divide. Jack Ryan is the only one who understands the whole thing. The differences in Taken Two are like much bigger. Right. It would, it's like, it's, and I think that that kind of reflects a perception. I mean, I don't want to say the reality because so much of politics and international politics is hyper reality, right? It's like our imaginings of reality, our cultural reflections that we see and not like our actual experience of it. But like the culture of these sorts of conflicts is one of like vast differences in perspective. Um, it's really almost impossible for the driving instructor or for the driving test instructor who's like bringing Liam Neeson's daughter back to him after her driving test to comprehend what's happened to this family, right, over the course of the previous two hours of the movie. They're just totally different worlds. So I would say that rather than mock the genre, I think it is trying to sort of uh, challenge people. And I think I think it is trying to. Well, it's it's very European, first of all. I, I mean, the director is Olivier Megaton, right? And it's written by Luc Besson, and it's from the same. It's like the guy who did The Professional, and it's in, similar to the Transporter and, movies. And the Fifth and, Element. Let's not. Yeah. Let's not forget. Oh no, I know, I know. Element. But I mean, I think I think this movie exists pretty firmly in kind of in closer to sort of a a French spy thriller kind of not spy, but like action thriller kind of movie where things are a little bit more morally ambiguous and existential, I guess, and not really a sort of like lethal weapon rock. Sock'em, sock'em, heroes are good but crazy kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I think it's trying to challenge the audience's preconceptions about who the hero and who the villain are a little bit, while at the same time also kind of wholehogedly giving them what they want. Um, in that sense, I guess it's kind of insulting them a little bit, challenging them. I don't think it's making fun of them. Um, but yeah, I definitely think there's sort of a sense in this movie that Taken One was a huge success beyond our wildest dreams, and we kind of don't know why, and we kind of have contempt for that fact. Let's mm. like let's mm. investigate like why was it that Taken One was so popular, and like what is problematic about the fact that Taken One was so popular? Um, you know, and like one of it is that like why are people so enthusiastic about the murder of all these Albanian men, right? And like, oh, because they're all sex traffickers. Well, what about the ones that are family people? You know, like that sort of thing. Um, I can see why he was. Yeah, sex it, it is, sex yeah. traffickers are people too, you know. I mean, they are. I mean, I, I know. I mean, I know that's an unpopular opinion, but I mean, I'm not one of the kind of people who says that you know everybody should be on lists and everybody should. I mean, I, I don't want to defend sex trafficking as an industry or the people <laughs> who do it really, but like there is still an essential human dignity. I mean, we're comparing it to murder. Um, we're not comparing it to like you know Steve on Blue's Clues, who should who isn't publicly funded. Right, because he's from he's on Viacom or whatever, um, so he doesn't have to worry about being any being cut. But I remember in the middle of the movie thinking, "Wow, reviewers probably hate this movie because it is really hard to like this guy, except for the fact that he's Liam Neeson, <laughs> right? Like, uh, like he's not a character that uh, if he were played by a lesser actor would evoke a, a heck of a lot of sympathy." Uh, and I think a lot of people, especially reviewers, looking for some sort of way to judge movies against each other because that's their job and it's such a hard thing to do. Um, they they like, well, do I identify with the character and like them? Is like a huge deal, even though I, I never really think that that's as big of a deal as a lot of reviewers think it is a big deal. Um, but uh, especially in this day and age. But it's like, well, I don't like Liam Neeson. I don't identify with him. I don't know why I care about what he does. 
right? Well, and the answer is because the story is interesting um, and because it has some interesting ideas behind it and has some good action and because Liam Neeson does a hell of a job performing the role. But, yep, and also because he has a particular set of skills. That, uh, <laughs> he, he actually doesn't make any phone call like that in this movie, which I feel like is a huge... If, if this movie were really trying to make fun of the audience, there is no way they make a sequel to Taken that doesn't have a super dramatic cell phone conversation. I mean, it, and it doesn't. It doesn't have anything like it's in the original Taken that made it so famous. It, I mean, like, if they really wanted to make this a deconstruction or an insult, he would, like, call the guy up on the phone and he'd be like, I found them. I'm going to find you too. Wherever you run, wherever you go. I will not sleep. I will not rest. You know, through rain, nor sleep, nor dark of night. Oh no, the budget was cut on this motto. I can't use it anymore because it's been eliminated. You know, that sort of thing. Um, I have a particular set of skills, and I have augmented those skills through very rigorous training and practice. Speaking of an extremely wasteful federal program, but the... uh, yeah. Well, Pete, what about the international audience for this movie? Is this a movie that's sort of targeted at America? Uh, it's interesting. Um, the fact that it takes place in Istanbul is probably meant to appeal to people outside the United States because Istanbul is not a particularly – I mean, I wish Dave were here, you know, being married to a Turk who is currently in Istanbul. Um, but uh, I don't think she's in, she's in Turkey. It doesn't matter. It's That's personal business. But at any rate um, – the international flavor of the movie is very apparent. The long stretches of the movie that have very little dialogue are comfortable for the international audience. Um, there's certainly a lot of shots of people in traditional Middle Eastern garb doing, doing like, and also more modern Middle Eastern garb. It's a pretty, it's a pretty sophisticated portrayal of the city, although one that shows it as full of a lot of clutter. Um, and I think that that is all supposed to appeal to an international audience. Um, one notable thing, very, no Turkish characters. And I kind of want to write an article about this, but it's, uh, it's the Albanians versus the Americans in Istanbul, and the Turks are kind of a to- an absent presence. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think, uh, I mean, Liam Neeson's not American himself, uh, so maybe that's a factor. But um, I think that if this is an internationally popular movie, it's because they are very sparse with the dialogue and make the scenes very evocative and effective without it. Uh-huh. Um, I bet the international audience would not get uh, the kind of digs in the movie at kind of decadent American lifestyle and would just sort of assume that Americans think that it's normal. And, I, and I, based on the laughter, the uncomfortable laughter in the theater that I saw it in, it's not normal. Um, yeah, it's like it's, it's really not normal to laugh off that kind of suffering, um, especially because there's a speech the girl gives at the beginning where she's just like, I'm not okay with what happened in Taken 1, and I'm never going to be okay with it because it was a horrible trauma. Like, we really need to deal with this uh, in some way. Like, we need to move on. Um, and, and the end of the movie, it does not move on convincingly from it. But Does that answer your question? That, that, about- does, I, that is an interesting thing narratively, right? Like, that, like she sets the bar at a, particular, at a particular place, and the movie fails to clear it. That, I, you know, that does point to some kind of, uh, I don't know, some kind of organizing conscious... Con, uh, consciousness behind the movie kind of effing with you, right? Somebody looking to indict the movie could say that the movie does clear it by showing them all laughing and eating ice cream at the end, right? Because there's, it's possible to imagine a scene that accomplishes that role that does those things, but it's not the scene that I saw. You know, it's like... It's it's you could say, well, this movie is just as bad because they do end up OK and you show that Liam Neeson is the good guy. But it's all in like the, sh- the way it's shot and the way that it's put out there. You know, like he's not being deified. He's not like, you know, this isn't Zeus from Wrath and Clash of the Titans that's doing these things. This is a tired old man who is like you know, sick and sick of the violence, but is still so much part of it that he can't. He's not even really capable of thinking about extricating himself from it. Um, but, yeah, it is interesting narratively. Yeah. So, I mean, the things that you pointed to as being uh, either appealing to or like, and not a sop to, but, uh, but, you know, done with the international audience in mind, um, don't, don't seem to include, I mean, all the hero, it, it's, don't seem to include like, uh, the thing that I would, um, I would sort of say is the the primary thing that that a movie geared at an international audience has to have, which is that like not all the heroes can be American, right? Or and and not all the bad guys. Uh, well, I nearly said foreign, but non-American, right? Is probably a better uh, is probably a better. Uh, well, Liam Neeson, Liam Neeson personally is an American. Famke Jensen looks pretty exotic. 
I mean, the daughter is very white bread. Yeah, that's um, that's true. I mean, F- Fumka Jansen, uh, Liam Neeson. You know, it's not like it's not like they cast like what like Reese Witherspoon and Matthew McConaughey, right? Yeah, this that would be they could you could make this movie with Reese Witherspoon and Matthew McConaughey, like, <laughs> and and it would be very successful in the United States and not successful outside of it at all. Or at least it would be at the Redbox regularly. Like you could totally get it with like, all the other Matthew McConaughey movies that are out there. Um, yeah, I think that I I don't know I. I kind of disagree with and I've been thinking about this a lot lately for professional reasons too which is that if you're really trying to connect with a particular audience is the thing to do really to show them their own face or to tell them that you're doing it for them like to to make a stretch of a comparison like think of Taken 2 and then think of that new like Dr. Pepper 10 soda for dudes like for men Right, you know what I mean. You, you know this Dr. Pepper thing. Is this no, the one with the, with the commercial where they're driving around in a in a car and they make a big deal of the fact that they're driving around in this really rugged car and drinking? Yeah, yeah, Dr. Pepper. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, Matt, you used to be a huge Dr. Pepper fan. I, I don't was, know. If a, I was prob- a fiend for Dr. Pepper. And yeah. Actually, Belinky and I and McNeil once drank over the course of a week. We were working on a, a short film of, you know, comedy sketches. Um, we once drank, I think, in the course of a week, like uh, 12 cases of Dr. Pepper between us. Uh, right. I, and it was actually, it was not too long after that that I swore off soda for good. So if there's a new Dr. Pepper, I have uh, sort of mixed feelings because, like, I want it, Pete. I want it so bad, you know? <laughs> you, won't, you won't want this one if you see the marketing. It came out last year. It's called Dr. Pepper 10, and it was advertised as for men only. Sorry, ladies. Women can't drink this soda, right? And then all the advertisements were about, like, these very, um, I, you know, I don't want to say iconically, but just sort of... Uh, um, referentially male things that they would do, right? Like, uh, and they were like, what was there's the lady with the cougar shirt? Is that a commercial? But you, you, Mark, you were talking about like driving cars and being dudes and drinking diet soda. Mm-hmm. It's part of this effort to try to find a masculine way of expressing the very lucrative anxieties that these advertising companies have been successful in instilling in women for so many years, right? This like, oh, you need to apply four different soaps to your body and you need to drink like special designer soda to not be fat. And it needs to be special for you because you're a special person because I think you're special, even though nobody else does because you're ugly and smell bad. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> this whole thing that, like, uh, how do we get men to use body spray? And, like, and which is basically perfume. Like, how do we get men to wear perfume? We call it body spray, and we promise them that the women that don't like them now will like them if they have it. And, you know, anxiety relievable by purchase, right? As, um, uh, more specifically for Axe, we will, uh, we will turn you into uh, chocolate, and the, and the women want to eat you and, like, dismember you with that. Yeah. For those which who remember that crazy, crazy Super Bowl commercial from years ago. Can I? Yeah. Can I just say, though, like, I had a a graduate school classmate who, uh, a man, who would wear that Axe chocolate body spray, um, too much of it. And let me tell you, it smells really good. (laughs) I'm not his target demographic, I think, right? Like, uh, I I don't think, like, getting your... uh, uh, getting your classmate to like want to sniff you all the time was, <laughs> was really the goal of that, but um, uh, but you know that's that that stuff smells really good. So it's not just marketing; you have to have a solid product behind it. And uh, let me tell you, the people who make the chocolate axe body spray, those guys have one uh, hell of a solid product behind them. Uh, this yeah. podcast has been brought to you. By Axe Chocolate Body Spray. <laughs> uh, so, so just quickly to wrap on it, like it's very important to marketers to target their marketing efforts towards specific subgroups of people. But I feel like a lot of marketers, because they're so used to dividing their own work between the kind of client side people and the agency side people, right? Like I don't have to do – like I don't get – not only do I not have to do the creative, I don't get to do the creative. The creative is done by the agency. I get to do the other stuff. Uh, and as such, like the targeting becomes an end in itself. Right, like the the client side people at these companies get so caught up in the targeting that a lot of the times you see the I think more and more you're seeing these ad advertising moves where it's just like let's just tell the person who's supposed to buy this that they're the person who's supposed to buy it, right? And and I don't necessarily think that that works. 
Um, because I think that when people, and I don't think people international are all that different from people domestic. The biggest difference is the language barrier. The other differences are what's legal in their markets and the distribution problems. But like at the end of the day, people around the world, they, Harry Potter is a good story. They want to see Harry Potter. They don't want to see like, you know, nonsense, you know, hey, look, it's a Polish Harry Potter who's Polish for you, Polish people. Like that's insulting. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, maybe if there's a Polish Harry, story, Harry that's Potter's just, though, Harry. Significant, Harry Potter, though, significantly not an American uh, franchise, right? Like, I, I think that there is. I think that there is a difference between the. I, I, I mean, not to be contrary or not to to you know, I don't know. Um, uh, poop on your point, but the uh, I think there is a difference between non-American people and and it is the the American centricity of their worldview, right? Even just even being in England, which is almost as close as you can get to America without being in America. Well, I guess Canada or something like that. But you know, like it's a nation uh, mostly of white people, you know, dealing with an immigration issue, right? Increased immigration, right? Like got some uh, financial troubles got some fiscal troubles uh it's you know it's just like it's uh it's you know a lot like uh the states right like but they speak english even but um there's just a different uh there's just a different worldview and i mean part of it comes from having had an empire and and you know not having it anymore and i guess you know america will be at that in that position at some point in the future but like um the the International coverage in the newspapers was, you know, was greater, right? The, the, it was also during the Olympics, I, I grant you. But, like, there, there was a worldview, right, that is, um, that is different, right? Like, and, and there is, you know, the, the kind of notable lack of that triumphalist America, F, yeah, uh, Team America World Police v- vibe, right? Yeah, but Americans don't necessarily even think that way. I mean, like, you know, what's the number one movie outside the United States? You know, Avatar, you know, like, which is by Americans about anti-imperialism, right? Like, uh, you know, like The Avengers, another huge movie outside the United States. Um, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't – Captain America is in it, right? But it, it has – kind of international appeal i think i think what you're what i would say about what you're touching on is that hollywood i think has an important role that it plays discursively in defining the national identity and what the country is interested in uh and reflecting maybe it's either passive or active reflecting back to the country what the country is interested in at a given time and i don't think that you're seeing as much of this kind of rah-rah america stuff out of hollywood um both because it doesn't sell internationally uh, and also because I don't think it's in the culture of the country as much anymore because it was so abused in the aughts, you know, for these wars. We're in like a post-Vietnam era right now, you know, like comparatively. You know, this is a time when people are pretty disillusioned with that kind of jingoism. Um, and as such, I think that you don't really have to make a huge – you don't have to make – Liam Neeson Chinese in order for his, you know, lack of Americanness to be a, you know, at issue. You know what I mean? Like, like you don't, you don't, it, there's a difference between not having the kind of cultural baggage that's associated with a particular sort of view of the rest of the world that ap- appeals at some point to some subsect of the American audience. There's a difference between changing that message and then also just like replacing the people and like indicating very clearly and visually, these are, these are, these are you. These are not foreigners in this movie. These are people that you will you will identify with. They are from your country. Um, and I mean, I don't think that the global box office numbers really reflect this kind of prejudice around the world. I think people just like good movies. Um, I mean, you know, people would say, well, Phantom Menace isn't good. Uh, yeah, sure, whatever. Good, whatever. Entertaining, whatever. I think it shows that the same denominators are everywhere. Um, and people appreciate it, an exciting, thrilling visual spectacle, and they'll be drawn to it. I mean, isn't it kind of funny that the, you know, the Return of the King did like double the international business that it did domestic business? I mean, yeah, it wasn't made in the United States, but it's not like those were New Zealanders who were watching it. Um, you know what I mean? Like, it's, I mean, I'm sure a lot of New Zealanders did watch it, but uh, there aren't that many of them to make $742 million in overseas box office. You know, it's... Um, well, written by... Different. I mean, yeah. written by... What written by an English guy starring yeah. starring an English guy, 
uh, directed mm-hmm. by a, a New Zealand guy. Well, I guess I don't know who's the star. I guess I, I mean I guess it's it's um, yeah yeah yeah. I mean it would be interesting to see how much of that global gross is from the United Kingdom specifically and break that number out from the rest of it. But my understanding is a lot of it isn't from the United Kingdom either. At least a big big chunk of it. But I don't know. I don't have breakout numbers of that right now. Yeah, I mean, I one of, that's one of the things I appreciate actually in, in that in the kind of the catalog that you gave of of aspects of the film that that lend itself to an international audience, like not relying on not relying on language, right? Like I, you know, I I like uh, I think that these these sort of action movies. Um, especially as as the kind of the Michael Bayification of action has uh, happened, um, and it it just becomes this kind of meaningless visual gibberish, uh, this kind of hyperkinetic, you know, supremely destructive uh, kind of. I don't know, terrible twos temper tantrum on screen. Um, I think that these things have, have taken on more of the characteristics of like uh, 20th century art films, right? Than, um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if, you, if you look at the ones that have really made a big jump domestically to internationally, it's like Pirates of the Caribbean, Stranger Tides. Yeah, like the Ice Ice Age sequels, you know, like the Alice in Wonderland Tim Burton movie, like all really weird visual things. Um, Yeah, that's that's something interesting. I mean, being someone who works in in theater and has worked in theater a lot in the past, like I've often compared Broadway, which is so strange when when you really stop, try to make it strange, try to kind of bracket the experience and consider it in isolation, right? Like, it has more in common with avant-garde performance art than it does with, you know, I don't know what you think of as being like realistic or naturalistic theater, right? Like, I think that yeah. at, at the most commercial ends of our entertainment, uh, it's, it's almost kind of like uh, the Uberos, right? Like, like the snake eats its tail and like these, these hyper-commercial uh, media spectacles, cultural spectacles take on some of the, some of the most avant-garde, you know, I don't know, uh, most, um, uh, you know, sort of strange, most arty uh, visual visual tropes, but not mm. not sort of worldview tropes, right? Like the the at the most commercial, and they always seem to be kind of in service of the the sort of I don't know multinational corporation state, right? Uh, and that I don't know. I think it's I think it's um and that it's is easier. why we have to get rid of bit Big Bird. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but we need to replace him with like you know, like the the lightning condor of private enterprise, who like says very mundane things, but like flies on the back of the storm or something, uh, so that the international audience will get on board with it. Big Bird's just not; he's not. Uh, the effects aren't there anymore. Up the up the ante. <laughs> well, that's. Uh, I think that's our podcast for the week. Uh, we had another topic, but I think we're going to hold it for uh, uh, for next time and talk about. Um, talking about revolution either on the next podcast or on on the site is that all right mark yep everyone's favorite post-apocalyptic tv show that's uh by the guy who did lost but not lost hey you know mark if you actually want to talk about that on overthinking it but you don't really want to go to the trouble of writing a whole article uh about it on overthinking it um can i make a suggestion for you uh sure uh overthinking it has forums oh I, 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 I knew that, but I am glad to be reminded you of haven't that. Been, yeah, you haven't been there. You haven't visited the forums in a long time. And who can blame you? There were some usability issues. But we've, uh, uh, this past weekend, we've actually tried to address some of the uh, most glaring usability issues at the forums, and uh, especially accessing the forums on mobile devices. And so, you know, um, we'd like to sort of invite, it was always our hope that, like, the forums could be a place where the incredible community of overthinking could actually originate material uh, rather than it all being all, rather than it all kind of coming from us um, as you know as though we were like sitting atop a hill and handing down the overthinking well from I mean high. we are the producers and you know the, everyone else are they're the moochers the leechers right yeah it is, it is impossible. <laughs> I have a very particular set of skills <laughs> skills that make me pedantic to people like you <laughs> I, uh, I understand punctua- punctuation in a, a you know fundamental way. Uh, no, we'd love we'd love uh, it actually if you know 
uh, if the community were empowered. Um, Liam Neeson was in that too. <laughs> Liam, love actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so overthinking com slash forums you can see some of the things that we did and there's a uh, if you want to bitch and moan about it there is actually a suggestions and support forum or if it's not working for you I would be especially glad uh, to know about that I think I've addressed some of the, the main pain points on mobile uh, for example that had to do with the, like the modal overlay window that um we were using for logins that's gone now um there's like a much more prominent login link right above the forums so if you're focused there you don't have to you don't have to worry about the the main menu login link which scrolls off the screen and and you know and so on and so on and so on we've tried to we've tried to make it better um so uh we would love you to log on to overthinkingit.com slash forums uh if you don't have one create an account on overthinking it and uh talk about this uh if you want to talk about this podcast the best place to do that is probably in the show notes uh the comments on the show notes for this episode you can also email podcast at overthinking.com or call or text 203-285-6401 and you know we have some great calls and some great texts and uh and as usual we don't um we don't get around to them we should do just a listener feedback episode i guess maybe sometime in uh 2014 we'll uh, get around to that when we're doing- we'll do it soon we'll do it soon it'll be fun when we're doing overthinking it podcast too, yeah, no, it, it it will be fun because a lot of the a lot of the mail we get and the the texts that we get are uh, really interesting. Um, but uh, so this podcast will be back next week. Until then, you can visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com. Check out the forums; they're not bad, uh, but even the articles are pretty good also, and they are the place where you can subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. We were getting a little NPR there. That's right. Right after this, we'll have the Insane Clown Posse with their big hit, Hocus Pocus. I'd like to go to the gathering of the juggalos. <laughs> I think I could be a juggalo. Pete, what would I find at the gathering of the juggalos? Well, Harvey Firestein, there yes. are helicopter there are helicopter rides and there's vending machines or services. You can meet up with all your friends to go to the Ferris wheel and also all the best artists of psychopathic records will be playing at the Gathering of the Juggalos. That sounds like fun. <laughs> I've been called a psychopath at many times. I sound like Gilbert Gottfried now, not like Harvey Firestein. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's all right, Gilbert Gottfried. Also welcome at the Gathering. Uh, he's part of the family. I mean, you're all family. Let's have some Faygo and call it a night. <laughs>